What are you doing at the moment? <laughs> you seem to be bloody useless without a cricket bat and a ball in your hand or some gloves. Welcome to PageCast, a podcast series brought to you by Jonathan Bull Publishers. By interviewing the authors responsible for some of your most loved books, we explore the thoughts, ideas, emotions, and creative processes that led to the writing of these books. If you're a reader with a zesty interest in people and stories, do stick around and enjoy what PageCast has to offer. Before we start, we want to issue a disclaimer. Conversations hosted by PageCast are happening from all corners of the world. So if we do have any inconsistencies with sound, we ask for your understanding as a listener. Today, Nicola and I will be chatting to best-selling author Jeffrey Archer and cricketer A.B. de Villiers. Both of them are one another's biggest fans. So stay tuned to get some more insight into their unlikely friendship filled with a whole lot of banter, as well as the story behind Jeffrey's latest novel, Over My Dead Body. Enjoy! Morning. Morning, great man. How are you? Getting very good in you. Well, I'd like, let me start by saying how delighted I am and how kind it was of you to come in, A.B. Very kind indeed. Much appreciated. What are you actually doing in life? I'm enjoying family time, to be honest. Trying to take it as slow as possible after my career. I'm currently at a, at a golf course called Leopard Creek. It's a very special place over here in the, in the low felt area of South Africa. So it's ah. close to the Kruger Park. It's been good. Other than that, it's just school time. with. How the many children, children have you got? I've got two boys and a girl. Oh, Please. wonderful. Bravo. <laughs> and I won't live long enough to see the boy playing for South Africa. You never know. Eh? <laughs> you never know. <laughs> so uh, do you have any sort of particular long-term aims? Will you return as a coach or as a manager or will you go uh, into something totally different? I guess I'll always be involved with the game, but definitely not professionally um, after my career. I Maybe I'll do a stint here and there, but not full-time. One of the main reasons why I've sort of started tapering down with the game is because I get tired of traveling so much. Um, done it for, for 18 years now, and it's just time to be more often home than not, instead of the other way around. You remember our walk around the park in Taunton yes. when you told me that would be your biggest problem, is whether you played all three format or whether you had to give up one. In, you were then engaged to get married. Yep. Looking back, actually, I could have managed my career better. I, I didn't take that chat seriously enough with you. I, I should have maybe let go of one of the formats to make sure I prolong my international career with the other two. But that, but that was the advice I gave you, young man. I said, drop I, I, one and do two. I wasn't listening. <laughs> you weren't listening. I said, do you not remember? I said, drop one and do two. And I, because I'm prejudiced wanted you to drop 2020 because I look upon you as a great test cricketer, but yeah. that's prejudice. It's because I love test cricket. I was that's willing to tolerate you doing one day, but I, I would have, if you remember, I advised to just get rid of the 2020 and cling on to the girl was my advice. I actually do remember that. It's very good advice. I'm sorry I didn't take it. <laughs> <laughs> I'd probably still be playing test cricket right now. So... <laughs> Either either Jeffrey or, or AB, if either of you want to tell me how you met. I can. I want to start off. <laughs> oh, you do, you cheeky thing. 
If you remember correctly, I approached you and wasn't the other way around. So my story comes first. It's actually the craziest story for me. I, I, literally, I was playing a test match at Lords. At that, at that test match, I, I think I got 14 in the one inning and we batted quite well. So I had quite a bit of time in the change room. And I had one of Jeffrey Archer's books there, um, Cain and Abel, which I was reading at that very time. Funniest thing, my manager took me out for dinner after day three or day four, I think, of the test match. And as we were driving out of the gates of Lords, he said, oh, look, there's Jeffrey Archer walking. He's probably watching the cricket. And I was like, what? Are you kidding me? That can't be. It's impossible. And he said, listen, do you want to meet him? I said, yes, I would love to. So I said, he's, an, he's a kind guy. I, I know exactly who he is. I've met him before, I think. And he said, just jump out and just go up to him and say, listen, I would like to meet you. He's a cricket fan. He's going he's gonna to know who you are. Very surprised when I walked up to him and he knew exactly what was happening. He said, hi, Amy de Villiers. You're playing well. Um, I've been following your career and I, I, I couldn't get a word out. So that's when the first time we met. And then not long after, I think you can tell the rest of the story. That is actually accurate. This insolent young man got out of the car, dressed, I remember, still in cricket gear. <laughs> and I took a look at him and thought, well, you'll look about 14, 15 years old. So what are you doing in cricket gear? And he told me who he was. And quite rightly, because I've been a lover of the game for 50, 60 years. Uh, I remember the great South African teams all the way back. We in Britain were already talking about A.B. de Villiers as the next great all-rounder in the class of Garfield Sobos and Ian Botham. So I was actually ready to kidnap him immediately and remove him from the land. We didn't want to see him ever again. <laughs> and uh, that was how it all started. And I consider it an honor that he has been a friend for so many years. I followed his career as one of the great all-rounders the game has ever produced. And from time to time, he sought my advice on other matters, which are personal. But I was very flattered that this boring old thing got approached from time to time uh, to chat about this and that. And I repeat, I consider it an honor to number him among my friends. Such a special and beautiful story. And um, it's so nice to, to get both of your versions. It was it was quite a big moment. I mean, I've, I've known Jeffrey's books since I was, I think, five years old. My parents were reading it when I was very young. And um, obviously, I got into the books as well. And then to get the opportunity to meet him, I mean, it was... It really was. I found my mom straight away and I said, you will not believe what just happened to me. <laughs> and um, it was crazy, man. I mean, and then the next minute, um, Mr. Archie came up to Taunton and uh, we had a walk in the park, had a nice chat about life. I asked him a few questions questions about his books. As he said before, he gave me a bit of advice and a few things. And I mean, it was one of the big moments of my life. That's very kind. Uh, it was in Taunton and you were playing against Somerset. And <laughs> you said you needed to seek some advice. And I suggested, as I know, I'm a Somerset boy. Uh, I know Taunton well. So we went for a long walk. And actually, what was fascinating, uh, A.B. said, I've fallen in love and I've met this wonderful woman and I want to spend the rest of my life with her. But I want to seek your advice, Jeffrey, because your marriage has been is known to have been such an amazing success. I mean, Mary and I have now been married 55 years and she is currently chairman of the Science Museum in Great Britain, the first woman ever to chair a national gallery or museum. A.B. went on to say, my problem, Jeffrey, is if you take 365 days in a year, I seem to be playing cricket about on 250, 
50 of those days, which is perhaps not the best way to start a marriage. And he wanted someone, I think, who would give a disinterested as opposed to uninterested view. My own feeling was, because I remember when I met Mary, and I certainly couldn't have been apart from her for 250 days, I I think, A.B., I advised you to drop one of the formats. And we then returned to the hotel, and I watched him slaughter Somerset the next day, which was embarrassing because there's a big pond in the park, and I so easily could have got rid of him. <laughs> which would have saved England and Somerset a lot of problems. <laughs> you know, and I was, I was following that advice. Um, I really was going to, actually. And then I got the surprise of the captaincy um, not long after that. And that's where a lot of things changed again, where I felt, you know what, for your country, you're going to captain the formats now. And I have a big responsibility to do it in the right way and to share, share my advice and my everything with, with the team and to leave it all out there. So it all changed um, the minute I got the captaincy. I remember one marvellous thing about your captaincy because it taught me something about cricket. And I always love to get what I might call a vignette or an idea. You were standing in the slips when you were captain and you were known tiresomely not only as a great wicketkeeper, but one of the best slip catchers in the world. And I was watching you and the ball went to you straight into your hands and straight onto the ground. Now, frankly, it was a catch I would have caught. I mean, it couldn't have come straighter or kinder. So I had a word with A.B. afterwards and said, listen, you idiot, how could you possibly have dropped that catch? And he made an observation which I'll never forget and which I've told many other people. He said, Jeffrey, when you're captain, your brain isn't always 100% on the game. You're thinking about the next bowler, how I place the field. Did I make a mistake? And I never had that problem when I wasn't captain. When I wasn't captain, I was concentrating on catching the ball or whatever I was doing. And they'd given me this massive responsibility to captain the team. Not a lot of people know that when they watch the game. What, they remember that catch you dropped that I could have Tell me, uh, Abby, you've mentioned you've been reading um, Jeffrey's books for as long as you can remember. And... Over My Dead Body is set in 1992, and it delves very deeply into the life of William Warwick, um, who is motivated by his need to catch criminals and then put them in jail. A.B., seeing that you're a huge fan of Jeffrey's novels, please give us a character sketch of William, who he is, why do you like him, why perhaps you don't. I remember A.B. getting into a lot of trouble because the, the cameras caught him reading my book on the balcony. The minute before I met you, as we drove out, my manager was having a chat to me about this and there were some negative comments about you reading a book and not being interested in the cricket as we drove out. <laughs> I did get into trouble. I've read quite a few of Jeffrey's books. I'm actually currently busy with um, the Clifton Chronicles. I'm into the third book of that, um, of that series, oh. which is an amazing story. I absolutely love it. I, I haven't um, read the book about the question you just asked me now. Um, I have scribbled through it, so I'm about to read it. I'm going to get into it very soon, and I'm very excited to get hold of it. But yeah, so I, I can't answer that question yet, but I can answer your questions on a lot of other... What you won't know is that my publishers have an order that A.B. Yep. de Villiers is to get the book a month before anybody <laughs> else. So you always get ahead of anyone else. I'm going to blame my family, the three kids. They're keeping me too busy. How, how old are the children? <laughs> so they're six and four, the two boys, and the little girl is 11 months now. Oh, you lucky man. 
Yeah, you, worship you worship her already, no doubt, and are a pathetic worm in her presence. <laughs> I'm completely in love. I'm gone. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I've got a granddaughter of the same age. Be, be assured, this will go on for the rest of your life. You're finished. You're broken. Wait until she learns the sentence. Can we go shopping, Dad? Oh, dear. Oh, I'm waiting for that. <laughs> Jeffrey, can we pose that question to you? Could you please give us a character sketch of William, who he is and why you like him and why you actually created him? He came from the Clifton Chronicles because Harry Clifton is a novelist and his eponymous hero was William Warwick. And so many fans wrote to me from all over the world saying, we want to know more about William Warwick, that I gave it a lot of thought and decided I'd like to do a series on that. So we see William at school as a schoolboy and he wants to join the Metropolitan Police Force. His father is a distinguished QC and wants him to go to Oxford and read law and then join him in what we call chambers. But he defies his father, becomes a constable in the first book, Nothing Ventured, and he becomes a detective constable and is moved into the art and antique squad where he's looking for a Rembrandt. So every book is a separate book and every with a separate crime and every book he will rise in rank so in book one he's a constable doing art and antiques in book two he's doing drugs and he's a detective sergeant in book three he's doing police corruption and he's an inspector and in the one you have there over my dead body, which has just come out. He's a detective chief inspector, and the commander has given him four cold cases where four murderers have got away with it. And the commander feels strongly that if you get away with murder, you might commit murder again. So that's his new job. And he's going on in the next book where he'll be a superintendent and will be doing royal protection. And then he will go chief superintendent, commander, commissioner of the Metropolitan Police. Whereas I have no doubt William Warwick will become commissioner of the Metropolitan Police. I, A.B., have to live to the age of 86 if I'm going to get all those books to you. And more important, you boring old toad. I will be wanting to get them to your two sons and the little girl. Oh, I can't wait for her to read Cain and Abel. They will be reading all of those, trust me. I wanted to ask you, when when in the Clifton Chronicles do you introduce William Warwick? Which book do you know? I think it's quite late. You discover okay, that... I was about to say, because I haven't heard from him. I, ah, I haven't no. introduced him. It's when, it's, it's, you see, later in the books... Harry becomes very successful as a novelist. Oh, don't give and it so, away now. I, so I don't learned, know that yet. <laughs> well, you'll get there. You're very slow in South Africa. It's a bit like you're batting. You're very slow. A.B., you're also a, a published author. A.B., did you follow a specific writing schedule for your autobiography, or how did you uh, go about it? Look, it's actually quite interesting. Um, yes, I did the autobiography, and it was one fantastic experience. The one thing I realized in the 
I think it took us 16 months to write the autobiography. But one thing I realized was that um, to be a writer or novelist, it, it takes a, a lot of hard work. Um, so I didn't write myself. I, I made some notes on my cell phone for quite a few months leading up to that. I had a ghostwriter or someone helping me out with the whole process. We revisited some of the experiences I went through, some of the main and key experiences I, I had throughout my career. I went back to my hometown to walk on the rugby field again to get a bit of that atmosphere going and some of the memories. So it was a, I'd never thought in my entire life that it, it, it will take 16 months to write a book. So it was quite a big wake-up call. Um, it, it's incredible. So that's what we try to do, writing my autobiography, to give the readers as much behind-the-scenes um, info and, and, yeah, and, and research of what, what happened in my career. Um, I wanted to give them the real experience of what I felt, the emotions I went through, in some of the cases, and um, hopefully we, we got that spot on. Well, I, I, I enjoyed it immensely, A.B., as I told you at the time. And uh, what I felt was very moving was how when you were stuck in certain situations that the whole country was discussing, you still had to make a decision. And I think that, frankly, I think that would be difficult for any young man. And you were very brave when we were off screen when you said, frankly, Jeffrey, I made some mistakes that I now regret. That's true of all of us, AB. Don't think you're in a private club on that one. On your comments about the writing and you weren't capable of doing it, I'd like to open the batting for England. I'd like to open the bowling for England. I'd like to field as well as you do. So don't worry about that. <laughs> Yeah, I guess we all we all have our challenges and our obstacles we we gotta overcome, and that's that's the beauty of life. It, it shapes us as human beings, and it creates character at the end of the day. If you can just find a way to survive and get through it all, so yes, you are absolutely right. I made some mistakes, um, but looking back, I, I won't say I regret them anymore. I was maybe sour at the time, but looking back now, it's part of part of who I am, and it's part of my character. I think also, Ab, that looking back is a pointless waste of time. <laughs> You're still a young man. You've yeah. still got a lot to offer to your country. And God knows South Africa needs people of your caliber and leadership doing something more. So don't look back. Look forward and think what you're going to do in the future and how that will involve your great knowledge and love of cricket and your great knowledge and love of your country. That's great advice. Thank you. Taken aboard. <laughs> Fantastic. So quickly, one after the other, I, I'd say, A.B., you go first and then Jeffrey second. <laughs> I am willing on this occasion to stand back and listen. Oh, the way I'm being treated by these South Africans. <laughs> I may have to flounce off. Right, well, uh, go ahead. Let A.B. speak first. Outnumbered. <laughs> A.B., you might be in it at the moment, but what's your favorite destination in South Africa? Would, can I give you two? Yes. <laughs> so the spot I'm at at the very moment, Leopard Creek, is right up there. And then a, a small town called, a, a little beach town called um, Harold's Bay. It's close to George. Um, uh, we love going there on holiday and absolutely love the area. Okay. Jeffrey, over to you. What's your favorite destination in South Africa? Oh, Cape Town. I think it's got probably the most beautiful cricket ground on earth. It has a lovely old hotel to stay in who are living in the dark ages, but I love them, the Nelson, or they were when I was last there. So the privilege of 
watching South Africa play England in Cape Town and stay in that lovely city will always be very, very special to me. AB, what's on the top of your music uh, list at the moment? Oof, I've, I've actually changed my tune a little bit the last while. I've, I've got into dance music, funny enough. It's weird. <laughs> but I know I, I, pretty much everything. I love the golden oldies. Um, I listen, listen to anything from Roy Orbison to Elton John to Counting Crows. Literally, any genre goes for me as long as I feel, as long as I feel the music talks to me. And Jeffrey, you've recently got yourself involved in a little Lionel Richie, is that correct? Well, yes, but what a pathetic reply that was from A.B. <laughs> golden oldies. He wouldn't know a golden oldie if he saw one. A golden oldie, A.B., is Frank Sinatra. It's uh, Tony well, Bennett. It's not well, Elton John, who's a modern, well, up-to-date man and a friend of mine. He's not a golden oldie. He's golden is golden Get oldie for me it. is a little bit different than it is for you. <laughs> I think that was a little stab at your age, Jenny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Boom, boom. <laughs> um, so, Amy, if you could have breakfast with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be? Jeffrey Archer. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, I, I honestly want to hear where he comes up with all, all these stories in his books because they are so so original and there's so much of them, so many out there. I mean, it's, it's too much to handle. I wonder. I actually just want him. To, I want him to tell me where where all this stuff comes from. You can't just keep writing like that. It's impossible. Well, I suspect. I just want to say because I will answer the question of who I'd have breakfast with. Uh, AB, AB would be the waiter at the time. <laughs> AB, that would get him into right the room. Awesome. That would get him. <laughs> the ideas. You see, young man, you were born with a gift of coordination between bat and ball, which is why you're a great golfer, why you're a great tennis player, why you can do anything where a bat and ball are involved. But that is a gift. I have a gift for storytelling. I don't know how I got it or why it's there, but it's a gift. And to answer your earlier question, I would love and have been honored to have had breakfast with President Mandela. Uh, he wrote to me about the books, and of course, that was touching beyond words. And I never had the honor of meeting him and I will remember the rugby match, of course, when he was wearing the famous shirt. Uh, I will remember it because I was there. I was in the crowd. I saw South Africa beat New Zealand in the final. How that idiot New Zealander missed a kick in front of the post remains a mystery to me. I don't think I've ever told anyone this. It was for another weird reason. I was in the ground. And when you'd won, my phone went from England, and I assumed it was someone talking about the game. And it wasn't. It was the Prime Minister, John Major. And he rang to say, Jeffrey, I, I want to tell you very privately, I've decided to resign and stand again, if anyone remembers that period. 
I left the ground at 100 miles an hour. Luckily, everyone stayed in the ground because they were cheering their heads off. And and uh, uh, President Mandela was on the... I mean, it was just amazing. I missed all that. My car took me to the airport. I took the first plane back. And I was with the prime minister the following morning. So it's not a day I will forget. So my chances of meeting Mandela disappeared. But I have... I have amazing, amazing respect and affection for a man who spent so long in prison and did not come out bitter, twisted and revengeful. He came out as a great statesman with a love of human beings. And he, for me, is one of the great men in my lifetime. Oh, on that beautiful note. If you were not, Amy, if you were not uh, a cricketer, what would you be? Um, I would say a, a, a doctor, probably. Um, I would have enjoyed following my dad's footsteps. I always wanted to. And I realized at high school that I simply loved sport too much and it wasn't going to happen. But my dad's been a doctor for ages now. He's a GP over there in a small town, Bella Bella. And um I've always had a lot of interest in, in what he does for a living. Um, he took me to theatre quite a few times growing up. Um, I've always enjoyed watching him at work. Um, so, yes, probably that would have been my, my second love. Well, what was your handicap in golf? What was the best you ever got to, uh, maybe? I was a, I was a scratch um, uh, at about 14. 14 oh, I was quite young when I was playing every day. Um, uh, I'm definitely not a scratch anymore these days. I'm, I'm playing like a five handicap and I'm quite dodgy. I need a lot of cover drives on the golf course. It's never a good idea. Uh, but I, I still love the game. I'll always love the game. Why, why, did, you, why did you choose cricket out of golf? Um, I, I went to a school um, called Afis, um, which is a, a very big rugby and cricket school. Um, I, individual sports just never really spoke to my heart, you know. Um, I, I love playing tennis and golf. But very lonely, you know, and I, I, I needed my friends around me. So ah, you're, a team was, man. Yeah. you're a team man. Yeah, I understand that. I, I was I, I was a runner 100 years ago and I enjoyed the relays more than being an individual and uh, in an individual race. I thought the relay was the best fun of all. I, I've always liked to believe I'm a team man as well. Uh, are you now going to ask me what I would do instead of? Well, actually, you have a massive list of, of occupations that you can tick off. So if, if, is there any occupation that, that is not on that list and that you actually wish you could have experienced? I would love to have been a barroom singer. I saw Sinatra 11 times and I just marveled. Marvelled not just that his voice was actually considered by experts to be a light voice, but his timing of a sentence, his ability to hold an audience. I sat and watched so carefully, and indeed, dare I say it, it helped me in my public speaking. He taught me lots of things. He taught me about timing, and then I had the, the pleasure of meeting him on several occasions, and we became dare one say it, friends. And uh, he, couldn't, he couldn't believe uh, that I'd learnt my timing from him. And uh, like, like A.B., he'd read Cain and Abel 
Uh, and because he told me, I said, how do you get time? And it was a bit like AB, you know, he did a lot of tours all over the world and on his own in a hotel room for long times. So he said, of course, I read you, Jeffrey. I'm I, it's not. He said the price of fame is very strange and a lot of it is loneliness. And I've never forgotten him saying that. If you were locked down with one person in a room uh, during lockdown or wherever, who would it be, A.B.? Well, we had lockdown not long ago and I was in a room with my wife. <laughs> I quite enjoyed it. So, And you're still married, so that's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, you learn new new things about your family when you spend a lot of times in a confined space with them, and I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I loved um, being around them the whole time, um, making food and being in the garden and seeing a different side of everyone. When you probably miss it if you if you're in the rat race and busy every day of training and going to the gym. With that lockdown, I was forced to just be in in the house, so it was quite interesting. I really enjoyed it. And Jeffrey, I trust it would be Mary. Yes, it would be Mary, but how dare you trust it? I might have several other names. <laughs> um, but nevertheless, uh, it's wonderful as a writer because you can go on working. I have a friend who owns a restaurant who's nearly gone under and another friend who owns an art gallery who's had a terrible time. Whereas a writer, you can pick up the pen and get on with it. And uh, Mary and I have been together for 55 years. It's the longest period of time because of her brilliantly successful career. Uh, uh, first as a don at Oxford and then a don at Cambridge and then running one of the nation's great hospitals, now running the Science Museum. It's the first time we've had a really long time together. And that that indeed uh, was, was uh, wonderful. But... Um, uh, if she hadn't been available, I might have considered Anne Bancroft has always been the woman I've been in love with from a, from a long distance. Uh, but I'm told, <laughs> but she was in lockdown in America, so that wasn't possible. <laughs> Amy, this is just the last question for you. Um, this is actually not scripted, and I just thought it's time in South Africa that we ask you this question and. I would really just like to know, what is your dream for South Africa? Oh, we've been through a bit of a rough ride um, recently, and there's a lot of negativity around. Um, I would, I mean, we spoke about Mr. the late Mr. Nelson Mandela earlier, and um, I, I would like for us to just remember that dream of, of unity, the dream of just standing together, and um, for all our racial issues to disappear, um, if people could just really move in one direction, move forward and understand that the power of, of unity is, is immense. And if we can get that right in South Africa, we're the most special little nation in the world. We could really change the, the world if we get it right. And I truly believe with our the diverse cultures that we have in this country, if we can find a way to move together in one line, that um, we have the potential of making the world a better place. So if we could get that right, that'll make me very happy. But A.B., Sport has done a lot for that. I follow the cricket and the rugby. You've got one of the greatest rugby teams in the world. And frankly, some of the back players are some of the best players in the world. Your wicked little winger 
who put three Englishmen on the ground without even introducing himself. I mean, you're a wonderful side and it's a privilege to watch you. And I hope that sport will help because racial prejudice is such a stupid waste of time, such a complete waste of time. And you've played your part in helping uh, the new generation in South Africa. And I, like you, feel very strongly. It's the same in my country. Don't, don't let's kid ourselves. We have terrible racial prejudice in this country from stupid people. Uh, when you were a runner like me and a cricketer like you, you realize, well, in my case, you realize that there were five black people running in front of me and I was trying to keep up with them. So it wasn't, it was at a very early age I realized I was inferior. And then worst of all, when I was president of Oxford before running for my country, uh, the president of Cambridge was Wendell Motley, the West Indian uh, Olympic silver medalist and world record holder. So I wasn't in any doubt I was inferior. And what we've just got to realize is everyone has to be treated equally. Oh. Thank you, Jeffrey. <laughs> Huge honor talking to you and reading your books. I will um, continue and still have a lot to learn from you. So thank you very much for your time. And um, we'd love to come over to the UK too. Yes, please. And my wife. Yes, please. I particularly am grateful, AB, because I've traveled from my study to my wife's study, which is 50 yards. And I'm very, very aware of you giving up your time. Thank you very much indeed thank you so much for your time ab now it's the two of us and yourself <laughs> <laughs> tell me 45 years of writing books jeffrey um from the very beginning your first book was not a penny more not a penny less and then unless i'm mistaken it didn't do very well it did, didn't do very well it did badly <laughs> 16 publishers turned it down the 17th published 3,000 copies and uh the second book did all right, 8,000. But the breakthrough was Cain and Abel, which in paperback sold a million worldwide in the first week. It's now sold 37 million and been read by 100 million people. So that was an incredible breakthrough. That, frankly, was my triple century at Cape Town. Changed my whole life. Your whole process of writing, obviously, AB acknowledged the fact that there is no end to your creativity of of just getting new storylines out. But we are very interested in the fact that you still write by hand. I, I, I rise at 5.30 in the morning, as I did this morning, and work from six to eight, as I did this morning. I do four two-hour splits, six to eight, 10 to 12, two to four, six to eight. In bed around 9.30, 10, up again the next day. The first draft will take about 40 days, 300 hours. I then do 14 drafts, every one handwritten, uh, and that takes about a year, about a thousand hours. I can't use a typewriter. I can just about switch on a light. I, can, I can't use any form of modern equipment. So I handwrite. I enjoy handwriting. I enjoy the process. So yes, I will continue to handwrite. And I was surprised the other day to learn from a leading critic in the United States, that half of the world's novelists still hand write. And um, it, to give listeners uh, a, a brief introduction to your latest book without giving too much uh, away, would you do that, please? Well, the latest one is the fourth 
in the William Warwick series, but you can read any of the books. You can start on the first one. You can start on the third. It doesn't make any difference where you jump in. The fourth, William has just become a chief inspector and is now head of the murder squad. And I got very lucky. My chief researcher is a man called Detective Chief Superintendent John Sutherland, who sadly left the Metropolitan Police because uh, he had a mental breakdown in what he described in his book as one murder too many. Uh, but I did go and see him and said, would you be kind enough to be my chief researcher so I don't make a fool of myself? So he gets to see the fourth or fifth draft and then corrects any silly mistakes I've made so that I am confident by the time you read Over My Dead Body, uh, it's been read not only by uh, John Sutherland, but also by a lady called Michelle Roycroft. Now, Michelle was a detective sergeant in the Metropolitan Police Force, 30 years, just retired, and she was in the drug squad. So between John Sutherland and Michelle Roycroft, I'm pretty confident it's authentic. So when I do my storytelling, I bring also their expertise. We came across the fact that you value art. And um, would you please tell us more about your favorite works of art that you own and whatever art you don't own, but you do admire? When I was a young man, about 17, I fell in love with a girl who was a year older than me and she wasn't interested in me at all. And the only way I could get anywhere near her was that she was reading art history at Bristol University and she would have to tolerate me going to art galleries with her. And I fell out of love with her and fell in love with art and have been collecting uh, ever since. Uh, the Impressionist period is the period I most love, but I never stop learning and I never stop being fascinated. During COVID, I discovered a school I'd never heard of, the Newland School in Cornwall, and purchased three pictures even in lockdown. So it never ends. My wife reminds me there isn't a wall in any of our homes that isn't already filled and that we have pictures in cupboards. But it doesn't stop me because I'm a lover. And if you're a lover, you go on. What would your advice be to anyone who aims to live a full life? Meet people and listen to what they have to say. My privilege is I have so many dear and close friends, uh, whether it be in art, whether it be in politics, whether it be in literature, and I've clung on to them. And that's what I think keeps me young. I adore, and I adore young people too. I, when I do my tours, I love speaking to schools. So I would say to anyone, it's people who'll make your life. You'll make mistakes. God knows I've made enough. If you want to pick raspberries, that's fine. If you want to paint a picture, that's fine. Do what you want to do. Be the best at picking raspberries. Be the best at painting a picture. Like A.B., never be satisfied with second place. That's what made him so very special. Yes, of course, he was talented. But I have to tell you, he's a bastard. He's upon the toughest competitors you'll ever meet in your life. That smiling, sweet thing you've just seen 
has got nothing to do with the real man. He's a killer. And that's what put him at the very top. A large, or not a large, a small rather, part of your book plays out in Cape Town. Um, what was the lead up to this decision? Is it just you had to sneak in your love for Cape Town or, or tell us more about that? I always say to writers, write what you know about. So when I decided that the murderer would try and escape to Cape Town, I chose Cape Town because I knew Cape Town. I chose that hotel because I knew that hotel. And then you know the reader will know you know that hotel. And the reader will know you know that cricket ground or you know that city. So I always say to readers, if you live in Timbuktu, write about Timbuktu because people will say, oh, it's fascinating or how interesting. But if you pick somewhere you've never been to, you'll get everything wrong. So all through the books, if you see locations, and indeed in the beginning of this particular book, set on a cruise liner, uh, I've been on that cruise liner giving lectures. So I'm able to do tell you about the cruise liner. When you see the auctioneering, I'm an amateur auctioneer. I do charity auctions. And so you see auctioneering. So I say to writers, write what you know about and the reader will know it's accurate. Jeffrey, this might sound like a loaded question. What makes you happy? Other than one's grandchildren and one's family, which you have to take for granted, you're asking over and above that. I love the theatre. I love sport. I was yesterday watching India play Pakistan. I love the game. I don't care who's playing who. Uh, and I love life. I've had a very privileged life and I'm very aware of that. Why am I with all I have on with you this morning? It's because I enjoy still kidding myself I'm alive. I enjoy still joining in the game and I hope that will never stop. It would be easy, of course, to live aboard, drink prima coladas and drop down dead. But I don't intend to do so. That's great news. It was so, so lovely chatting to you and thank you so much for your time and also just for for your kindness and just being so gracious and yeah, taking the time to, to chat to us two very young journalists in South Africa. <laughs> no, it was, a, it was a great pleasure and I wish you both every success in your careers in a country that is going through hard times at the moment but you're still dare i say it a boring old man in a boring old country you're still as a nation finding your way but south africa has so much going for it i would say to the politicians for god's sake start working together and put your country ahead of yourself Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of PageCast. We have an incredible lineup of author interviews, so head over to our Facebook and Instagram and follow Jonathan Ball Publishers to stay updated and in the know regarding future episodes. Thanks for your interest in the story behind the story. Happy reading from everyone at PageCast. <laughs>